y'all. I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 192. You want to know what I want to do right out the gate? What? Patreoners! That never gets old. Flash to everyone listening and they're like, yes, it does. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we don't care because we are super thankful for Kayla R. from Texas. Holly Y. from Maryland. I have a Holly H. from Indiana. Danelle C. from California. Tori T. from Virginia. All right. And then Anna L. from Florida. Kathy L. from Michigan. And Cindy L. from Texas. You really don't do that the same anymore. I really don't. You've lost your Texas. Yeah, Texas. You've lost your pizzazz. Where's my pizzazz at? Not in Texas. Thank y'all so much for being part of Patreon. Y'all are getting all kinds of bonus content. And if you want the content that they're getting and an episode shout out, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. All right. Well, I have a show for you. For me? Well, for everyone. For y'all. You as in in general you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it is true crime, so there's that. Remember To Catch a Predator? Mm-hmm. I fucking love that show. But this show takes it a step further, and it's on Discovery+. Plus. It's called Undercover Underage. <gasps> I, okay, I've seen it, but I haven't seen it. Like, I saw it, and I was like, I wonder what that is. Uh, it's so good. It's this girl, well, lady, she's 38. Her name's Rue, and it's her team, and they catfish predators they think she's 15 and so she has different personas and everything oh my god it's four episodes so far and it is so good they do all of that but then they can give it to the police in the state and they could press charges which has happened yeah that's awesome makes me so uncomfortable i mean yeah it should yeah one of them was a teacher that's disgusting well it's always disgusting but that's really fucking disgusting Mm -hmm. yeah i love to see how people work like how like her and her team they are googling everything and you know it's like oh my god these people can research it's a little different take than just like somebody doing it behind the scenes and then them coming in for the show like and you just see in the meat. You get to see yeah. more behind the scenes. That's cool. Yeah. Well, and it's good for people who are single like me. You can't always be trusting everything on Hell the internet. no, you can't be trusting what you got to be. Uh-uh. And so I know how to search some stuff, but these people take it to a whole nother level. And I'm like, okay, taking notes. Yeah, never take anyone for face value online. Well, Colby and I finally started the new Dexter I'm mediocre about it. Last episode, you were so excited. I was, but then I watched it. And it's like, it's good, (laughs) but like, okay, I've only seen, there's only two episodes. But like, you literally could pluck Dexter out and that just be a show. Oh. Because he's like in a different location. I don't know, if you haven't seen Dexter, I'm not going to give everything away. But like, he's like living another identity somewhere else. And it's cool though, because he's in, I think it's upstate New York, of course. I can't remember the details. But there are indigenous people who live in the area and they highlight highlight missing and murdered indigenous women oh, that's good. so like stuff like that which i'm like see that so that's why i'm saying like it could be a whole show in itself you know do you have to watch the first dexter to watch this one i would say you have to have at least a general idea yeah yeah because they reference things and you know blah 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 i can't believe we both had something to say i mean tv related of course But we do have something else. Yes, we are super excited to announce that this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Our first ad. Oh my God. Popping our cherry. Not the first time. (laughs) Y'all, I'm super excited about this sponsor because we talk all the time in this podcast about the importance of mental health. And now we have BetterHelp to help you, you know, get help. Oh, Lord. (laughs) 
subliminal messages over here. Help, help. And look, the end of October, beginning of this month, I was just in a, I don't know, a state of meh. And I seriously, I wanted to stay wrapped up in a throw blanket on the couch. And I didn't want to move. But you know what? With better help, you can do therapy from your couch wrapped up in your freaking cocoon. So you're not gonna have to sit in the waiting room being all uncomfortable with the anxiety that I have through the roof when you already don't wanna leave your house because you wanna stay in your cocoon. You can log on to your account anytime, send a message to your therapist, and then get a timely and thoughtful response. Yes, and you'll be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That's always been my biggest worry about starting therapy is are you gonna mess with them? Literally the anxiety of just going to therapy. And then plus, If you're like me, I see patients all day long. I can't take off work to schedule out an hour to go see somebody. But with BetterHelp, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, and you don't ever have to leave work. The services are available worldwide, which is a big deal because we know we have listeners literally everywhere. Y'all blow our minds. We see like, oh, you have a new listener in insert country that you never even thought we could reach. And so that's what's so awesome about BetterHelp is that that service is available to you. And look, over 2 million people have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Look, talking to your friends and everything, that's all good and you need it. But sometimes you need a professional You need someone who is a third party that has no particular interest in the matter. Exactly. If you know she's the man, that's what she just quoted. But seriously, someone who is going to be able to listen and give you an unbiased opinion, advice, you know, just to listen. Because sometimes that's all you need is just to speak it out. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy that's done securely online. So visit BetterHelp. That's help. H-E-L-P, and join, like I said, the over 2 million people that have started using this service. So if all of this sounds good and you're like, oh my God, this is what I need, go to betterhelp.com forward slash A-P-C. And again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash A-P-C. And because y'all are listening right now, you know, to me and Carrie, you get 10% off of your first month. So if you want all the good good that BetterHelp offers and 10% off your first month, again, go to betterhelp.com slash APC. Okay, so in the Facebook group, there is a pinned post called Suggestion Box. And that's where you can drop an idea because, you know, everybody's got amazing freaking ideas of these cases that we've never heard of or these paranormal things that you've never heard of. Some of our best stories have come from listener suggestions because y'all know shit, there's no way I would know. And this week, no different. It comes from Serena S. in the Facebook group. I do want to say content warning on this one. It is pretty gruesome. Interestingly enough that we just said better help because this story has a lot of mental health aspects to it. So this story is apparently a pretty well-known Canadian story that I don't know how I've never heard of. Maybe you know it. It's a story that takes place on July 29th, 2008, when two strangers meet on a Greyhound bus and their lives are forever changed. Okay, I think I know this one. God damn it. I hate when you know my stories. (laughs) 
So let's start out talking about Timothy Richard McLean Jr. He was known as Tim. He was born October 3rd, 1985 in Victoria, British Columbia, and he grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba. At the time of this story, Tim was 22 years old and was working as a carnival worker. Or have you ever heard him called a carnival barker? No. So like from what I gather, he was like such a personable guy and so like such like a smooth talker and, you know, just could like shoot the shit with anybody that he was the one that like stood at the games to be like, step right up, get the next thing right here. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know what they say. So he was the one that did that. He was young and a free spirit that the carnival lifestyle was perfect for because he loved to travel and meet new people and. And all the things that give me anxiety. Oh my God, right? On this occasion, he was coming from working as a carnival worker back home. He was super close with his family and everybody loved him. I did see that he had a son, but I know that there was a child that was born like four months after this incident. So I don't know if he had two children or that's the one child that he had after this incident. The other key player in this story is Vincent Lee. He goes by the name Vince. And Vince was born April 30th, 1968 in China. He eventually immigrated into Canada, but when he was in China, he had gone to school and graduated as a software engineer. But once he and his wife moved to Canada, his life was very different because you see that a lot. People who have these skilled jobs like a software engineer, a you know, you see it a lot with like physicians, anything where you've like gone to school for something. When you move to another country, it doesn't always transfer. So when Vince got to Canada, like I said, same thing happened. And he had a hard time finding work. He did find work at a McDonald's that I think he actually ended up being an assistant manager at. He worked at a couple of places like that. Like he worked at Walmart, but he ended up getting fired from that job for getting in a fight with a coworker. He did try to go back to school for a little bit of time in order to be a software engineer in Canada, but because of the language barrier, he basically failed out. And so he and his wife had a really hard time making ends meet. You know that in 2006 is when he got his citizenship. And at some point after that, he had gone to another city to find a friend, but he didn't know where that friend lived. And he ended up being found by police officers and said that he was like, quote, following the sun and that he said that God told him to do that. And he was institutionalized. I think it ended up being like a 10 day hold where he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Now we know that people who have schizophrenia are usually not violent. And if they are, it tends to be more towards themselves than other people. But unfortunately, in this story, that's not the case. So Vince had gotten on a Greyhound bus and gotten off at the wrong stop. Like the bus driver was even like, hey, this isn't your stop, but he got off anyway and spent the night on the bench at the bus stop, but not like, oh, well, let me sleep on the bench. No, like sitting straight up, eyes open, like never moving. Uh Uh-uh, no, 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 no. Right. And he was trying to sell all his possessions. He had a sign that said laptop for sale for like $600 or best offer. He ended up selling it to like a teenager for $60. So a big jump from 600 to 60. From there, he ended up getting back on a Greyhound bus. This is the same bus that 
Tim was getting on as well. There were 38 passengers on this bus and this bus trip was on into July 30th of 2008. So on the first leg of the trip, Vince was sitting at the front of the bus and Tim was sitting at the back of the bus just in front of the bathroom. The Greyhound bus had made a rest stop and Tim got off to smoke a cigarette, walk out, walk around a little bit, and then he got back on the bus. This next little part, I've seen a couple of different stories of, but when Tim got back on the bus, Vince had left his seat at the front of the bus and come to sit beside Tim in the seat that was vacant. Oh gosh. So I know, I'm like, please don't sit by me. Clearly there was other vacant seats. Like, why are you beside me? Mm-hmm. That's like when you're in a public restroom and somebody comes and sits at the stall right next to you and you're like, there's literally five other stalls. Like, can I get a courtesy stall? Right. (laughs) Yes. Why does that matter? It doesn't, but it does to me. One source did say that Tim like smiled at him and was like, yeah, have a seat. You know, like they made eye contact and was like, yeah, come on, have a seat. But everything else said that Tim didn't really acknowledge him. You know, they didn't know each other. Tim had some headphones in and leaned his head up against the window and fell asleep. About 30 minutes after the rest stop at around 8.30 p.m., that's when everything changed. Passengers said that Vince's demeanor had been weird the whole time, but very like quiet. And about this time is when he started getting more fidgety and started talking to himself in Chinese. And then all of a sudden, Vince pulls out this huge knife from his backpack and starts attacking Tim. Who's asleep with his headphones on? Yes. Tim has no idea what's happening or what's coming. And Vince is literally calm and stoic. And there, uh, sorry, y'all, there's a lot of gory details. Literally plunging the knife into Tim's neck. Tim wakes up and lets out this blood curdling scream like feel it in your soul death will I can only imagine and Tim is very athletic he's young much younger than Vince but when he's attacked in his sleep he doesn't have time to respond but he does the best that he can and he fights back as much as he can passengers are yelling for the driver to stop the bus and Vince is like a robot stabbing Tim over and over again he ends up stabbing Tim more than a hundred times. That is wild. The bus driver gets the bus stopped and Tim is trying to fight him off, but he ends up like falling in between some of the seats. So he can't get up. He can't run. He can't do anything. So everyone is like hauling ass off the bus to get away from this guy who just up and started attacking the the man sitting next to him. Two of the passengers that were sitting right across from Tim and Vince was a couple. One of them had like jumped up. He was trying to help and like get the bus driver, like get people off. And he realized that his girlfriend was like still stuck, like frozen back there, like didn't know what to do. So he's like, has to run back there to try to get her. And he and the bus driver are trying to do their best to like to get him to stop attacking Tim but he turns the knife and starts like waving it at them so they're like okay 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 and they you know they're like you gotta save yourself yes getting the fuck out of Dodge because I mean honestly at this point there's no telling how many times Tim had been stabbed already at this point they tried it wasn't that they didn't try they did but when he was leaving the driver was smart enough that he turned on this emergency halt and so that means that 
if Vince tried to like drive off, it wouldn't go. That was smart thinking. The people are standing outside of the bus, basically on the side of the road, watching all of this happening, still yelling at Vince to stop attacking Tim when Vince kind of not snaps out of it, but I want to say like acknowledges them yelling at him. And at this point, he had decapitated Tim's head. That is so sad. Vince runs to the door with Tim's head in one hand and the knife in the other and starts to come towards the door. And again, the driver had enough wits about him in that moment to shut the door. And when he shuts the door, Vince's hand with the knife gets caught in the door and is like moving the knife out like straight scary movie style. I was about to say, this is like Michael Myers. Yes. So Vince is able to pull his hand with the knife back in and is still like showing Tim head to the people outside of the windows. He's just walking back and forth, back and forth, and then goes back to attacking Tim's corpse. At this point, there's a bus, another Greyhound bus that's kind of following this bus, like same path, carrying more passengers, sees that that bus is pulled over and stops behind them. And so does a truck driver. The second bus driver shuts off the power to the bus. So he really isn't going anywhere. And that truck driver and the other bus driver try to get him to stop. And he, again, is like wielding this knife at them. The other passengers who are at this point just onlookers, just watching what Vince is doing to poor Tim. And they see him begin to dismember the body. They say that they see him, again, y'all, this is very, very, very graphic. So if you need to skip forward, please do. They say that Vince was came prepared. He had plastic bags to store some of Tim's body parts. Oh my gosh. They watched Vince pick up Tim's ears and smell them. And he was even licking blood from his fingers. Mm-mm. Uh-uh. When the mounted police finally get there, after about 30 minutes of this, attack going on, they pull their car up and block the door so that Vince couldn't get out. They bring in SWAT and hostage negotiators to try to convince Vince to surrender, but he is having no part of it. He throws the knife out the window and eventually just after, I think it was like four hours of negotiations, Vince makes a run for it. He breaks through this window and falls out onto the knife and starts to run. Police taser him a few times before they were finally able to get him in handcuffs and arrest him. When they do, they found Tim's nose, ears, and tongue in his pockets. That is so fucking gross. They took him to the hospital because he had fallen out of the window on the knife and had some cuts and stuff on him. And Serena, who recommended this in the Facebook group, said that her friend was an orderly at the hospital where he was taken. Oh my gosh. So now police are left to go into this horrible crime scene. Keep in mind that the passengers who are standing outside of this Greyhound bus watching are being completely traumatized. They are screaming at what's going on. Some of them are throwing up. I mean, they are seeing the most gruesome thing that they could possibly see happening unfolding in front of their eyes. And then the police officers that have to go on the bus after this to see the carnage. Mm -mm. Like I said, all in all, Vince stabbed 
Tim more than a hundred times and they were not able to find some of Tim's heart and eyes because Vince cannibalized them. Yeah, I remembered the eye part because you know I'm very weird about eyes. I will say that Vince denies that he cannibalized Tim. However, they were missing and they found his other body parts, you know, in his pockets and stuff, but they didn't find those parts. So the fact that he was licking the blood off of his fingers and such, it doesn't surprise me. It grosses me the fuck out but it doesn't surprise me. Right. So Vince is arrested. Greyhound does their best to try to take care of the passengers, like buy them new clothes that they lost that were now part of evidence on the bus and help them with like counseling and that sort of thing. Unfortunately, Greyhound had an ad that was running. It was like this nationwide campaign and they had to pull it because the tagline was, there's a reason you've never heard of bus rage. Oh my gosh. So had this not happened, that is a genius marketing line. Yeah, would have been good, but definitely have to pull that. Yeah. The other thing, an advertisement that was declined was... PETA, you know, People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, had sent in this ad to the Portage Daily Graphic, and they used Tim's murder and compared it to the killing of animals for food. Are you kidding me? No. So, of course, that paper was like, absolutely not. We are not running this ad. That's just so distasteful. Yes. So basically, it went through the court system, and just seven months after Tim's murder, Vince was found not criminally responsible due to mental illness. Mm. So he was then taken to a secure treatment facility. Vince was saying that the reason he attacked Tim was because he was trying to save us from aliens, and that... Again, he was in a psychotic episode. Yeah. He was in a schizophrenic, having schizophrenic delusions and, and all of the things. And so he truly thought he's saving the world, like almost like a second coming of Christ. Like he thought he was saving the world from alien invaders. And the only way to do that was to kill Tim. And poor Tim is literally an innocent bystander, wrong place, wrong time, never heard a fly, and he was brutally murdered. I feel like there's a difference in, okay, you're protecting from aliens, but then you took his ears, his nose, all of that, and you had baggies, and... Yeah, that's... Like, that's, uh... That's the part for me that feels a little... Not premeditated because Tim was random. Unfortunately, this is going to sound terrible, but you literally could pluck Tim out and put anyone in that situation. It doesn't lessen what Tim went through and what his family went through, and he's still the victim here. But he wasn't an intended target. However, he was prepared. Vince had left a note for his wife. I can't remember what all it said, but it basically was like, I'm gone. Like, I'm sorry you're not happy kind of thing. And then he was trying to, like, sell off his possessions Mm -hmm. and all of that. He had the baggie for the body parts. So all of that feels calculated Mm -hmm. could it have all been part of a delusion that he was getting ready for that he was still in that part of the same delusion absolutely but there was some preparedness yes also did he stop taking his medicine had to have from when he had been institutionalized before because he had been put on medication yeah that's what i'm like so mm, yeah so tim's family sues greyhound the attorney general of canada and 
vents for like $150,000. I'm going to jump forward a little bit. In 2011, two of the passengers sued vents, the RCMP, the Mounted Police, the government of Canada, because they were exposed to the horrific beheading and they sought $3 million in damages. Are you kidding me? The family did $150,000 and they did $3 million? Yeah. I'm going to be honest. I didn't really understand suing the government of Canada and the Royal Mounted Police. However, I do know there was some controversy on how it was handled, like because they spent four hours in the negotiations and and all of that. So there was some drama in that. I think that's kind of where that comes from. But that feels icky, those people suing to me. Yes. But I also don't understand suing Greyhound. Yeah, I mean, it's not their fault. I mean, so they're saying like, maybe there should have been more security. I I don't know, but I I just don't, I don't understand. Y'all tell us what you think about that. We're not done with the story yet, but tell us what you think about that because I really don't understand what Greyhound could have done differently. The driver tried to help. The driver disengaged the bus so that he couldn't run. They gave, I think I heard one passenger, it was like $467, something like that to replace the clothing that was lost, you know? Yeah. So I just, you know, and I think they even tried to help with, like counseling and stuff too. I I could be wrong about that last part, but I feel like they did their part in something that they were just, it happened to be on a Greyhound bus, but that's not where this story ends. Unfortunately. So Vince did really well in this lockdown facility. It took a little while, but they regulated his medication and he was out of his delusions. All of the symptoms of schizophrenia, like the hearing voices and all of that had stopped. And in June of 2010, he was able to start supervised release. It started with short kind of stints, just like being able to walk around the ground, supervised, that kind of thing. And then two years later, he was able to start unsupervised leaves from the hospital. So he was able to go to the market, do the things. By 2015, Vince was in a halfway house and the only monitoring that he had was ensuring that he was taking his medication. On February 10th of 2017, Vince who had changed his name to Will Barker, was declared completely stable and granted an absolute discharge. Yeah, I'm I'm not okay with that. So there are no legal restrictions or obligations that he has to follow. And from an interview that I heard with Tim's mother, she said that that means that there's no restrictions on him traveling out of the country. There's no basically criminal record for him. So there's no nothing following him saying that he has done this. Right. So he's living as a free man under the name Will Barker. That's like public record. Like everybody that's reported everywhere. So I'm not being a dick being like this is his new name. So he is completely free. No one is monitoring to see if he is taking his medication. A man who, like you said, clearly has stopped his medication before mm-hmm. and it turned into a fucking ghastly murder. I don't even know if that's the right word to use, but like an atrocious murder. A murder in which the first police officer on the scene later died by suicide because he could not handle the PTSD and everything associated with what he had seen and experienced. Oh my God. So many 
people that were on that bus are living with PTSD and have lost jobs, can't go into crowds, don't trust people, you know, have all of these symptoms of PTSD that have completely changed their lives and they're living with this every single day and fucking Vince slash Will is off living his best fucking life. Right. It can be argued that he was in a schizophrenic delusion and it wasn't him, it was the illness. But it's not, I don't think it's fair to, and life's not fucking fair, but I don't think it's right that he is able to get out and not be monitored to make sure he's taking his medication. Right. Because like I said at the very beginning, people who have schizophrenia are making this number up, but 99% of the time, nonviolent. And this guy is the exception, not the rule. However, clearly he has a history of not taking his medication. I mean, where do we draw the line of not holding someone criminally responsible when they have a mental illness, but then still ensuring that they're not a danger to themselves and others in the future? Right. Because I feel like normally when people, and this might be completely wrong, but I feel like when people are found not guilty by criminally insane kind of thing. Yeah, they have to stay in that institution forever. Forever. Right. Well, and Tim's family is really pushing to change those laws because they're like, you know, his mom's like, if you kill someone, this is a quote, if you kill someone, you should lose your freedom, period. Yes, it does suck that he was in a delusion, but that doesn't change it. It doesn't take away his responsibility. Of him not taking the medication. That was his decision. that led to this. And look, I totally understand. As someone who takes two different drugs to even me the fuck out. Oh, we take three. I only take two. Oh, I take three. (laughs) We've both been there where it's like, you know what? I'm feeling good. I don't need this anymore. Well, you're feeling good and you feel like you don't need this anymore because the medication's doing its job. If you need the medication, you need the medication. Your need for it doesn't just fucking stop because you're feeling better. And that is very common with people who have mental health issues that, again, you feel better. You think that, I'm fine. I don't need the medicine. And you stop taking it. And then you're back in that dark hole. You're back in that pit that you can't. You feel like you can't get yourself out of. And in his case, you're back in fucking delusions where you think God's telling you to save the world from aliens and someone died brutally and the lives of every single person that was outside those 38 passengers both of those bus drivers that 18-wheeler driver and every police officer that came to that scene their lives were completely changed and they'll never be the same right even people on the jury and stuff well I don't know if it got to that I don't think it got to that I think it was like because he wouldn't even like help his attorneys and all that so I think it was just like a hey this is this is what's happening oh okay I don't know from what I got gathered there was no jury it was like even the prosecutor was like hey you know what he's not fit to stand trial yeah I feel like in the states it would be you're right he's not fit to stand trial he's not helping in his defense he's not doing all that stuff so let's put him in that institution get him leveled out with his drugs and now let's go to the penalty phase yeah let's go to the trial phase where we handle the murder Again, mental illness is very serious, but that can't be your excuse for bad behavior, especially murder. Do I use it when I'm very, very anxious and overwhelmed and I snap Donna's or Colby's head off and then I'm like, I'm so, so sorry, I'm very anxious. Well, I need to go take my fucking PRN medicine and chill the fuck out. It doesn't give me the right to be a dickhead to everybody 
because I am not properly controlling my anxiety when I have the tools. That's a whole nother can of worms that we're not even going to deal with. But we know the lack of mental health services in the United States, Canada, and fucking worldwide. But if if you know and you have the tools, you got to fucking use them. And at this point, there's nobody making sure that Vince slash Will is using those tools. Right. And again, last time he didn't, it led to fucking murder. Yeah, it's so frustrating. And that's why when you said it doesn't end there, and I was like, unfortunately, because it's not fair. It voids Tim's death to me. Exactly. That's the thing with stories like this too, is because now we're sitting here talking about Vince, and we're not talking about Tim. And he's the fucking victim. His family is the victim. And Vince is the one that's getting all the shit because of the story. I know this isn't why he chose that name, or I don't know, but that you said Carnival Barker, and his last name is Barker now. It's not, it's Baker. Oh my God. (laughs) Did I say Barker this whole time? Uh, You said Will Barker, I thought. No, I didn't. I said Baker. I wouldn't have fucked that up. I really, I was like, oh my God, he chose Barker, and you said a Carnival Barker. Uh Uh-uh, it's Will Baker. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I can't read. Oh, Lord. Sally. She couldn't be on that undercover underage because, um, no. At least it wasn't another Paula Gertrude. (laughs) True. I couldn't even say Gertrude just then. (laughs) I just really sucked as it. Meanwhile, everybody that listened to me say it the first time was like, Barker? (laughs) I just had to fuck something up. You know, I'm like not going to be able to sleep tonight because I'm like, God, I I fucked up that name. (laughs) Whatever. You're going to sleep just fine. Well, I won't at first. (laughs) And then I will. Uh I will go to bed with anxiety about it, though. My stomach's going to (laughs) hurt. Like right now it does. Take your medicine. (laughs) I kind of wish you hadn't known this story because you would have been so fucking livid listening to it. Yeah. So I really wish you hadn't known it. Because I wanted to get your engines roaring. <laughs> I can't believe you didn't know that. Well, you know, sometimes I live under a rock. I think so. <laughs> with Will Barker. <laughs> well, hopefully yours isn't as brutal as mine. So it's not as brutal. Uh-oh. But it's still full on gore. And don't get mad, but I'm stepping into your lane because I didn't know at first that this was crime until I started researching it and then I was too invested. That bitch. (laughs) Well, it was a recommendation from Dana in that same suggestion box thread. Okay, copycat. Mm -hmm. And what I read was vampires. So I passed go, did not collect $200 and I was like, suggestion time for me. Well, it wasn't. So this is a story about a vampire cult in Murray, Kentucky. I forgive you because it's about a cult. (laughs) I'm going to start by talking about Roderick Farrell, but he goes by Rod. He was born March 28, 1980. His mother, Sandra Gibson, was 16 at the time of his birth. She and his father married, and Sandra thought they would be a great little family, but that only lasted three weeks. They split up, and Sandra moved out, back with her family, and the father enlisted in the military. Most say this was a means of him escaping his parental obligations. By joining the military? Yeah, he went and then like, he wasn't ever in his life. I think he met him when he was eight. I've literally never heard of anything of such. I don't know. Kind of like he went off and was like, oh, doing the military life can't be there to help you out. But as you can imagine, 
Rod's childhood was rocky. His mother was just a teenager herself, and she didn't know how she was going to provide for Rod, but she was determined to make sure he knew how much he was loved. I will say that there's speculation that their relationship turned incestuous. What? Yeah, so... There are not a lot of things on this planet that gross me out more than that. I mean, as it should be, but like... Yeah. Something, I don't know, like, it makes my skin crawl and my stomach hurt all at the same time. Mm-hmm. How do you cross that line? At what point do you go, huh, kind of getting feelings for my fucking son? And then, I, like, I just, I, I, I go back, I think I've even talked about this before. Like, I go to that moment where the line is crossed. And you know that there are moments that led up to this. It's not like, just like, wham, bam, out of the blue. That moment where the line is crossed, like who makes the first move? I just, my brain cannot wrap around that. Right. I think it wasn't really Rod's choice. But I mean, I'm talking about in like situations in which it is. Like I get like a abuse is like a whole nother thing. Mm -hmm. But I'm talking about, I've done stories on people who have incestuous relationships that is consensual. And so it's like, that's what I mean. Yeah. Well, Sandra did seem to have a thing for younger boys. When she was 34 years old, she was arrested because she wrote love letters to a 14-year-old boy. And it was about like wanting him to be with her and all the things. And I think she actually tried to solicit stuff with him. And it was it was bad. Oh, that's disgusting. There is more speculation that Rod's grandfather sexually abused him when he was just five years old. So Apple didn't fall far from the tree. She did what she knew. Yeah, everything kind of lines up then. And again, that this is all still alleged, but it's got a solid story. The building block seem like it, you know. Yeah. And it was around this time that Sandra and Rod were living with her parents. So the grandfather did have complete access to Rod. And Sandra was working as a sex worker and a dancer. And because she still was a teenager, she was partying, wanting to have her freedom. So she kept odd hours and she relied heavily on her parents for help with Rod. So like I mentioned, Sandra and Rod were close, maybe too close, but they they did spend a lot of time together. And Sandra also loved vampires. So at a young age, she introduced Rod to Dracula and all the other vampire classics. And as he got older, Rod's fascination with vampires and the macabre only intensified. So we're going to fast forward to when Sandra began a relationship with a man who lived in Eustis, Florida. So she moved her and Rod down there and he was like in eighth grade. Rod, not the guy she had a relationship with. I have to clarify. I was going to say, I mean, it sounds like that could have been true too. Right. It was during this time that Rod met Heather Windorf. They became inseparable. They loved the darker side of life and they loved hanging out at cemeteries and everything. Heather was the quirky artist in her family. Her older sister was a cheerleader and super popular and Heather never felt like she fit in until she met Rod. In school, Heather had her backpack on. She had a Barbie doll hanging by a noose from her backpack. What? So it was just that kind of like shock value that she liked. So you can just see the drastic difference between her older sister being a cheerleader and she has a Barbie that is hanging from her backpack by its neck. I feel like this is literally every 90s movie. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's literally every cliche rolled into one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. You could be a cheerleader and still like the macabre. Oh, for sure. 
Just when Rod had settled into his life there in Eustace, the relationship his mom was in ended. So she uprooted them again and went back to Murray, Kentucky. This angered Rod because Heather was someone very special to him. He hated everything about Murray, but it would all change because he found some friends. One friend, Scott Anderson, he lived basically in a small shack with his family. They didn't even have curtains. They used trash bags just tacked up instead. His father was addicted to both alcohol and drugs. Scott worked at McDonald's and he would have to take food home from there sometimes. And I don't know if he stole it or what, but just to make sure his younger siblings were fed. Oh, God. Scott and Rod were partners in crime. They just gravitated towards each other. But then there was another guy who Rod was friends with. His name was Jaden. Jaden, too, had a troubled home life where he was forced to grow up way too fast. And actually, when Rod went back to Murray, because they were both wearing the black trench coats and very goth in a very conservative small town, the kids wanted them to fight. Like, they didn't, they wanted them to be rivals. But when they talked, they were like, oh, shit, we have a lot in common. So we're going to be friends instead. You said this happened in the 90s. And we know like Columbine happened in 99. So this was before then. But it was that kind of 90s mentality of that fear, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, the three of them would get together, hang out. And they would escape their terrible realities because they played different games like Dungeons and Dragons and this other one called Vampire the Masquerade. However, things took a darker turn when Jaden got into vampirism like legit. And of course, Rod was interested in it as well. And after learning more about the lifestyle from Jaden, Rod was 100% invested in becoming a vampire as well. So Jaden and Rod performed a blood ritual that Jaden called crossing over. And that was to induct Rod into the vampire family that Jaden was the head of. So they went to a cemetery to a certain tombstone that he referred to as the birthplace. They used razor blades and cut their upper arms. Oh, Rod then proceeded to, quote, feed from Jaden until (gasps) his thirst was satiated. And then Jaden fed from Rod's arm. I could have gone a lifetime. Right. Jaden is quoted as saying, giving blood is one of the most precious gifts you can give to someone. Yes, at the United Way. (laughs) With a medical professional. Well, after this, Rod introduced Scott to vampirism. This was the ultimate fantasy, and Scott was no different. He loved this, and it gave him some hope for something different than his mundane life in rural Kentucky. And something about Rod is he's very articulate, very intelligent, and he just had that... Je ne sais quoi. Yes, that people who gave him a chance, you know, who got to know him, gravitated towards him, believed what he said, all of that. And Scott was totally convinced that this was legit. Rod, again, just had that kind of effect on Scott. So soon after, Rod and Scott did the whole crossing over ritual to induct Scott into the house as well. And this made Scott feel more involved in the group again. He felt like he had made it to the inner circle. 
Well, soon, Rod inducted Charity Kesey and Dana Cooper into his vampire family. Charity was Rod's girlfriend. Now, they're all like 15 and 16. Jaden was a little older, maybe 17 at this point. Both girls had similar backgrounds as the boys. Their home life was less than desirable, so they wanted to belong to a chosen family, and it just happened to be this vampire family. Now, I will say, vampirism, like if you want to do that, you go do it. It's nothing bad, but where Rod takes it is bad. It's just like the occult. You know, people hear and they're like, oh shit, but it's not just a bad thing. Well, Rod was living his best life now because he was the head of this group of friends. He loved that power. Later in an interview, he said that He would go to the local college and sit in on some psych classes. He read books about psychology, how to do like mind control stuff. Like he, he was a cult leader in the making. You know, that's what Mm -hmm. he wanted. He believed he had discovered who he truly was, a 500 year old vampire. And people bought it. You know, they were like, oh my gosh. And again, he's very articulate. So, I mean, if you think about it, he really does seem like before his time. And if you're in that whole group mindset, it's easy to get wrapped up in, you know, like us being from the outside and older now, it's like, okay. But I mean, again, they all came from really bad backgrounds. They were just looking to belong and looking for, like you said, their people, their chosen family, people that loved them and they loved because they hadn't had that. Yes. Which is exactly what cult leaders look for. Yes. In the group, or as other people call them, the vampire cult, they found a safe haven in each other, but also one in the middle of the woods. They found a place that they could use as their lair. It was an old abandoned, like concrete building in the woods, basically. They called it the Vampire Hotel, and they spray painted that on the building. They would drink, do drugs, do blood rituals out there, and it was covered in graffiti that said things such as, please deposit dead bodies here, or follow me to death. And let me go back to the drugs. So they weren't just smoking pot. Rod was doing like PCP, acid, I mean, heroin. Jesus. Really hard shit. And he was getting it from his mom's boyfriend. Oh my God. So again, just to tell you about his home life, you know, it's still not good. So you remember Heather, the girl from Eustace, Florida? Her and Rob remained in touch, even though he moved back to Murray. They spent hours talking on the phone. But it was long distance, because again, this is in the 90s. So they both ran up huge bills. $850 long distance bills. Yeah. Shit. And they would talk about everything. He told Heather about him being a 500-year-old vampire, and she said that she felt like she was like a demon reincarnated. I don't know. They were just kindred spirits, you know? And and another thing they had in common, Heather mentioned how terrible her home life was. She said her dad was abusive, and her mom turned a blind eye to it. And this struck a chord with Rod, because, you know, he had unstable family life, too. He became fixated on helping Heather escape her family life and join his vampire family. Or, as you mentioned, his cult, he saw another lost soul that would easily fit in and follow his lead. And, you know, if you think of all the, like, dumb shit that you believed and thought and all the things that, as a kid or a teenager, that now you're like, 
God damn, I was an idiot. I totally can see how this happened. Like how, you know, the the friends believe like, oh yeah, he's a 500 year old vampire. That makes total sense. Like I can yeah. see how they fell into that trap. Yeah. And again, all of these people wanted to be something other than who they were. So it was, you know what? I do feel like I have this other thing inside of me. I bet I was a blah, blah, blah. Because I'm special too. Mm -hmm. even though no one's ever told me that I am. Exactly. Well, another thing occupying Rod's time was him developing his own vision for this vampire family. And this vision was different from the teachings of Jaden. They were still close, but Rod was now more of a leader than Jaden was. And that wasn't going to fly because Jaden was supposed to be the head. But Rod took things to a whole other level where Jaden thought you only drank blood for survival and it had to be consensual and all of that. That, Rod believed that you could drain a person dry if you wanted to. You take what you want. So what Rod had done, he had taken everything he learned from Jaden, but decided to take things down a darker, more sinister path. What I'm about to tell you deals with animal abuse, so content warning, you may want to skip ahead 30 seconds. How do I do that? <laughs> Sorry, you have to hear it. Jaden said that it had been a few days since him and Rod had spoken, but they met up at a friend's house. Well, Jaden wanted to talk to Rod about everything, so they went for a walk in the woods, just catching up, trying to clear the air. Well, that's when a stray cat walked up to them. Rod bent down, scooped the cat up, and was petting it. Well, it's a stray cat. Who knows what he was doing? You know, like he might have been petting it, but it could have been hard. It could have whatever. Well, the cat scratched him. And when it did, he grabbed the cat by its neck. And Jaden said he looked at him and said, you see this tree? And then flung oh my the God. cat against it. Oh my God. That's been in one of my stories before too. Why do people do that? I don't know. And of course, the cat fell to the ground. And while it was laying there dying, because it did not die right away, oh. Rod was smirking and laughing. God, what and, a douche. Yes. And Jaden was like, what the fuck? That's not cool. And Rod was like, this is why I hate you. You have this holier than thou attitude and I'm fucking tired of it. And that's pretty much when they went their separate ways. Rod went on dazzling his group with his tales of his ancient lives, you know, all that jazz. And they were in it to win it with the vampire lifestyle. But they were still outcast in their community and they wanted to find other like-minded people. That's when the cult really became interested in New Orleans, Louisiana. And they really wanted to go there. Also, something needs to be noted here that Rod was under suspicion for some more animal cruelty on dogs. It was like from a local shelter, some dogs were taken and then they were found dead. And they believed he had something to do with it, but I don't think they could prove it. But still, he was like, look, we got to get out of town. What kind of piece of shit do you have to be that you have to get out of town because you harmed an animal that was like already in a fucking shelter? Not you shouldn't harm any animal, but like, again, attacking and preying on the weakest Right. Well, when he was in Eustis, Florida, so again, he was in like eighth grade to ninth grade there. One of the sheriffs said that she knew of Rod because he was definitely different, but he would be dressed in his all black stuff on his porch with a lot of samurai swords, doing a whole, I mean, basically LARPing by himself, okay? You know, doing his whole yeah. thing. And so people were like, what the fuck? Well, she went to talk to him just to be like, hey, what are you doing? 
And he like meant, you know, he was like, I'm talented with all blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, okay. And she can't really do anything because I mean, he's on his own property and he's not harming anyone. He's literally just dancing around with his sword. But then he said, I mean, you don't see any cats around, do you? (gasps) But again, she can't do anything because he's just saying words. Yeah, that's what people knew of him. Gross. But back to this timeline, they wanted to go to New Orleans. But Rod wasn't going to leave Heather out of their plans because, again, he wanted to help her escape. So they decided that they would swing by her house, pick her up on their way to New Orleans. So on November 25th, 1996, Rod and his cult followers set out on their road trip. Again, Heather was living in Eustis, so they traveled almost 800 miles there and they were on a rescue mission. So Heather lived with her parents, Richard and Ruth, and her older sister, Jennifer. They did, in fact, make it to Heather. But Scott's car was acting up and they had a flat tire. Or I don't think it was flat. It just was like losing air a lot. But they were all still yearning for New Orleans. So Heather said that, hey, my parents have a car. We can just use that. But the guys have to go get it. Well, some say that she gave them keys. Others say that she left the garage door open for them. And then some say she didn't have a part in this. But what we do know is that before any of this happened, they went to a local cemetery. And what we believe is that she kind of said, look, I'm doing this for you. And I really want to be a vampire. So you have to turn me kind of, you know, like a tit for tat thing. Like bite her neck, turn her. Slice his arm and let her drink it. Oh, so coppery. (laughs) Ugh. Before the ritual began, Rod did do a large amount of LSD. He used the razor blade to cut himself, and from that wound, Heather consumed his blood, and he consumed hers. And that made her a vampire. Okay. So after this ritual, they headed back to Heather's family's house. So the girls, Heather, Charity, and Dana, they went to Heather's boyfriend's house because she was going to tell him, bye, going to New Orleans, running away from here. And the two guys, Rod and Scott, stayed at Heather's house. They went inside through the garage and they found Richard, Heather's dad, asleep on the living room couch. All was well and good. They could quietly get out of there and start the trek to New Orleans, right? I'm guessing not, right? Right. Rod just stood there in silence watching Richard sleep. Then after some internal deliberation, Rod took the crowbar that he had brought in from the garage and struck Richard in the head. Holy fuck repeatedly. It's documented that Richard was hit more than 22 times in the face. Holy shit. But he was also like stabbed with the crowbar in his chest, hit in his chest. It was bad. Ruth, Heather's mom, she had been in the shower, but now she was in the kitchen and she heard the noise, went in to see what was going on in the living room. That's when she came face to face with Rod and Scott. She had a cup of freshly brewed coffee in her hand. And so she's like, hey, who are you? What are you doing? And she threw the coffee at Rod and like got him in the face. Good for her. You can take this at face value. But Rod said that he was going to let her live until she threw the coffee at him, much like the cat in the woods. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure he was going to let her live. He felt like he was being attacked with the cat. Oh, the poor baby got attacked by a cat. And this mom, you know, so I think it's anything that kind of challenges his position. Tell me you have little dick energy without telling me you have little dick energy. (laughs) 
And it doesn't have anything to do with your size of your dick because I'm not being right. Right, right, right. I'm just saying you get my, you get the point. Yes. Oh, I hate this guy. We all do. Rod used the crowbar again and beat Ruth. Oh. They say she died instantly because the blow was so brutal that it severed her brainstem. Holy shit. But it didn't matter because Rod just kept bludgeoning her. Scott said Rod did more damage to the mom than he did the dad. There was blood all over the place. It was on the ceiling, like dripping down. Jesus Christ. Everywhere. So both boys were covered in blood and Rod also carved the letter V for his vampire name into their bodies. And there's some accounts that say they both danced around the bodies, but that wasn't backed up in Scott's confession or Rod's confession, I don't think. Now that Ruth and Richard are dead, they go into the room, get some jewelry, get some money, and then leave the Windorf's residence. They stole their car like they had planned. They picked up the girls and set off to New Orleans. Jennifer, who was 17, came home from being at work. Now, the thing is, is that her boyfriend, uh, he was a little older and... Her parents didn't like her hanging out with him. He worked at the same place. So she was a little past curfew getting home, probably because she hung out with him a little bit, you know? Mm -hmm. So she tiptoed into the house and she thought she had made it without getting caught because her dad was laying on the couch. It's dark. You know, she's not turning on any light. She's trying to get into her room. But then she walked in and saw the bloodbath in the kitchen. There were pieces of brain matter in the dining room, which was next to the kitchen. That's how hard he hit Ruth. Right off the bat, Jennifer was worried about Heather. She's missing. Jennifer called 911, of course. And it was so sad because, because the operator said, hey, are they both breathing? Like, can you see anything? And she's like, I can't get that close. They're my parents. Oh, God. And I was like, I get it. You know, like, it's one thing to be kind of afar from them, but then to get up close to try. Oh, gosh. But when she saw the parents' car was missing, too, she was like, you know what? I think it has something to do with the friends that Heather had. They were into some weird shit. They thought they were vampires. And Heather had recently went down, like, a really dark path. So the police put a bolo out for the Explorer that they stole and that license plate. Well, they found the match for the plates. But when they got there, it wasn't the Explorer. So when they ran the VIN number, they found that it was registered to Scott Anderson. So they had switched the plates. So the police were like, okay, yep, they're all together. Then they put a bolo out on Scott's license plate and the Explorer. These kids just think they're so fucking clever. Mm -hmm. And you're not. Nope. It had been a few days and the kids were running out of money because they weren't that clever. So Charity called her grandmother and her mother for help. But her grandmother called the police and said, hey, she just contacted me. They traced it and saw that they were in Baton Rouge. Well, the police told the grandma, hey, play along, say that you're going to send money and that they should rest at a Howard Johnson Inn and gave her the location. And that's what she did. And they fell for it. They went there. But the money wasn't waiting for them. The police were. Suckers. (laughs) At first, Rod tried to claim that a rival vampire group had committed the murders (laughs) and pinned it on them. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Probably Jaden. That's probably who he was talking about. Oh, God. Idiot. And this has nothing to do with it now, but... That 14-year-old that Sandra, his mom, had whatever with, Mm -hmm. that was Jaden's younger brother. 
he was 14, obviously younger than her son, but like yeah. her son's friend's younger brother. That's disgusting. Sorry, that took yeah. me a minute because there's so many names. So I'm glad I that know. you spelled that out for me because it, <laughs> like I wasn't like I knew it was terrible, but like my brain was like, OK, I know this is terrible and I know these names. I need help. Well, soon Rod did plead guilty and he confessed everything. And I have a terrible quote from his confession. Oh, God. It says, by that time, you know, it was pretty obvious. I had blood on me and a crowbar in my hand. I was fixing to say, yeah, I want to have a coffee with you, son of a bitching smartass. But anyway, that's when she lunged at me because I was actually going to let her live. But after she lunged at me, I just took the bottom of the crowbar and kept stabbing it through her skull. Oh my God. And whenever she fell down, I just continually beat her until I saw her brains falling on the floor. Oh. Because that pissed me off. Of course it did, you needle dick prick. He was sentenced to death, making him the youngest inmate on death row. But in September of 1999, the Supreme Court reduced his sentence to life without parole since he was a minor when he was like automatically sentenced to the death penalty. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's like unconstitutional now. Yeah. So he was on death row for like two years and now he has life with no parole. Scott Anderson pled guilty and was sentenced to two consecutive life terms without parole. But in 2018, the Daily Commercial reported that Scott's sentence had been reduced to 40 years, and that included the time he already served. So he will be 51 when he is finally released from prison. Now, it is to say that he said he had no part in it. You know, he kind of froze. But... Other people say, well, he knew about it and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But he didn't kill anyone, but he was there Mm -hmm. and he didn't stop him. And then he ran. Charity and Dana were found guilty of murder in the third degree. And Dana was sentenced to 17 and a half years. Charity was given 10 and a half. And they're both out. I don't know if they served their full term, but they're both out. However, no charges were filed against Heather. But I watched a show on Oxygen called Deadly Cults about this. In it, Scott Anderson said that when they all went to the cemetery, Rod and Heather went somewhere by themselves to do the ritual. Well, they were gone for about an hour or an hour and a half. And he said he honestly believes that she told Rod more about the abuse from her father and stuff. And that riled Rod up even more. And before this, you know, like when he was doing his cult leader thing back in Murray, he would talk about taking a life, how he thought that would make him the all-powerful person he would be and blah, blah, blah. And Scott said Heather basically served her dad up on a silver platter to Rod's bloodlust. But I guess the only way that she could be, like, it's all about her intent. Was she just telling her boyfriend about the abuse that she had sustained? Or was she telling him that because she did know that it was going to, like, make him go crazy and kill her freaking family? Right. But the thing is, too, he had told Heather he wanted to kill someone. And, you know, like everyone knew he was kind of that dangerous, like. Yes, but you have to be able to prove her intent. Right. And you can't because they were by themselves, all the things. Now, they did write letters and she talked about like living at home as hell and, you know, whatever. But it's purely speculation. However, I feel like she, I mean, obviously she lost her family, but her sister like stopped talking to her and they, I think they might have reconnected recently, but like for a while, like Jennifer went and lived with some relative of them and Heather ended up having to live with a foster family who I believe was her lawyer 
lawyer, like the family didn't want anything to do with her. I mean, it's sad, but you can understand why. Yes, because honestly, and this is just purely my opinion, she got off scot-free. Yes, she lost her family and stuff, but maybe she didn't want them to die. But I feel like you have to know that this is why you don't lie. Because she said later that her father never abused her, never did anything. Rod's making that up. But also everyone in Rod's life came from an abusive background. I don't think he would fixate on her if she didn't tell him that kind of stuff. Yeah. I just think you have to take ownership in your actions. Right. Because she was an angsty kid. They're all kids. She could have literally just been doing that to be like, oh my God, I hate my family. They don't understand me. But also who, like who she's talking to, they all come from really bad upbringings, abusive upbringings. And so when you're saying that, they're thinking the ultimate worst. Then mix in drugs, alcohol, you know, this grandiose thinking. It's all so dangerous. I think Charity said that Heather didn't know what was going on, but it's really murky because I honestly was shocked that Charity and Dana got sentenced when Heather didn't. Right. Like what piece don't we know about this puzzle? Like what's, there's gotta be something we don't know. Like some behind the scenes, something. They all said that they were together. Like all the girls were together at Heather's boyfriend's house saying goodbye. And then they went to swing by another friend who like was into their kind of same stuff, but like not 100%. They were like, hey, do you want to go to New Orleans? And she was like, no, I'm going to stay here. And then they went to meet the boys. So I feel like Heather was with them the entire time and they were both covered in blood. So I I don't know. I just feel like maybe he had said something about killing her parents on the way down there or something. And so they all knew about it that way. And that's why they got charged. I don't know. It just doesn't add up to me why Heather had no charge against her. And again, I get that she is a victim here because her family is the one who was murdered. But she's not a victim if she played a part in it. I'm not saying she is. I'm saying that she would need to get jail time. Right. Because clearly the justice system didn't feel like she deserved jail time. So I mean, maybe she wasn't as involved as we thought. I don't know. Right. What I get from her is a little Gypsy Rose kind of thing. Yes. And so that's why I'm like, I feel like you played a part. Like, I feel like you knew this guy was a little unstable, a little on heavy ass drugs. And you let him to this and then was like, oh, shit. He did it and then didn't know how to react. You know, like, Mm -hmm. I feel like she knew what she was doing. Well, and it's hard because even if she didn't, she's still making adult decisions. And like we say, you make adult decisions, you have to face adult consequences. And so even if she didn't really know, and it's like, well, she's a kid, but the same could be said about someone committing murder and getting tried as an adult. You know, again, Mm -hmm. you make adult decisions, you get adult consequences. Yeah. So I don't know. It's just sad because they really, were a cult in the fact that he definitely influenced them. And like you said, preyed on the vulnerable people. He obviously wanted to control their mind. He was studying on that. He was trying to do all of this stuff. And so I think if it hadn't been Heather's parents, it was going to be someone, you know, I'm not saying he's not the bad guy here. He is. He's a terrible human, but I feel like the others made a mistake, but they weren't terrible people. They were people that just got wrapped up in something. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, if you honestly think this guy is that all powerful evil being, you're not gonna be like, no, don't kill them. 
Because he's going to kill you. Right. So I, I don't know. I'm just, he is the bad guy here. Rod is 100% an evil villain and he should never be out of jail. Like if he gets out of jail, he's just going to kill again. You know, that's how that is. Does he still in prison think he's a vampire, I wonder? I don't know. You should write him. Add him to your uh, list. <laughs> He would use too big of words for me. I'd be like, what the fuck? He'd be like writing Shakespeare. And you're like, <laughs> I don't get it. This is why I'm kind of glad that we have this podcast because nobody in their right mind is going to put either one of us on a jury. So I'm kind of glad because now we don't have to make those types of decisions. We can just talk about other people who make them. I know. I tried to be on a jury. They said no. Yeah. And then you were in South Mississippi and said you were cool with pot. So they were like, <laughs> girl, bye. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, they said he did crank. I think is what they say. And I was like, I don't know what that is. I just know that's how I turn my car on. <laughs> Again, not cool. I'm not a cool human. And I was like, is it crack? No, I think it's like, you know how crack is whack? I think that's whacker. <laughs> it's like laced with something. I've been watching 60 Days In and Clove, I think is what they do in, I think that's what they're calling it. Maybe clone. Fuck if I know. That's what they're calling it in jail and stuff. And it's like basically like marijuana and a lot of other shit that is not good. Crank is meth. Oh, <laughs> I thought that was ice. That's what they... Crank is ice. Ice is meth. Crank and ice are all meth. <laughs> oh, God. The only reason why I know that is because it says crank, ice, glass, crystal, <laughs> meth. Facts. I also pulled up when I Googled what is the drug crank, it pulled up the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration for me. And it was like, do you need help? Oh, see what clove is. I think there are clove cigarettes, right? Yeah, that's that. But this is something else. And according to the Google, well... Okay, let's be honest. We took a pause and Donna looked at what the fuck they said on 60 Days In and it was what? Clone. And clone is synthetic weed. How they do it has like pesticides and shit. God. Yeah. Don't do that. (laughs) Like don't. What the fuck? Yeah. As I sit here and drink a Dr. Pepper. (laughs) (laughs) This is definitely not the same, but we all have our vices of putting shitty things in our body. Definitely. This was a really heavy episode. It sure was. Damn. Just to loop back to my story real quick. In no way did them being in like the vampire lifestyle make them bad because Rod was going to do something like this no matter what. The vampire family really was his cult. And I think he found like his confidence in his like evilness Mm -hmm. through the power he had over them because they call it like the vampire cult murders and stuff it's not that they all just happened to be in the vampire lifestyle and it was like a sexy name for the papers and shit right but it's not like they were a human sacrifice in a ritual of theirs absolutely i feel like we kind of came down hard on heather but it's like we i feel like we don't know all the pieces and so we're speculating her involvement and yeah. we're going to lean towards her being more involved than, you know. Yeah. Because I know it's my nature to assume the worst. It is. And I think because we do like true crime and so we do know like Gypsy Rose and all of that. And so we kind of are jaded and yeah. have a hard time taking things at face value like that. Yeah. Because I feel like there's always an ulterior motive. Mm-hmm. We both talked about some shitty humans. I kind of liked you dipping your toe in my pond. I kind of like the little change up, but get back out. (laughs) But, you know, I think the difference is that I feel like justice is being done more because Rod is still in jail. Oh, yeah. Well, we want to hear y'all's opinion. Tell us if you think we are completely off base with Heather. Yes, we always want to know y'all's opinions. And we want to know your opinion about us. So can you leave us a review on Apple or Stitcher? Yes. But also remember... Creep it real and And don't don't get scared. scared.